X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, February the 5th. Good day to subscribe to The Local. So was yesterday, so might be tomorrow, but I would say today is the very best day. Also a great day if you learn something, you find something mildly interesting, post the episode and post what you learned. More people should know about the resource that is local. We put our time into making the show, not marketing the show. So ultimately, if anybody's going to listen, it's going to be because you tell them to. Today, back in the day, February 5th, 1846, Oregon got its first printed newspaper. It was the Oregon Spectator out of Oregon City, the first Oregon Territory newspaper produced on a printing press. The 1845 Flum Gudgeon Gazette and the Bumblebee Budget were the first newspapers published in the Oregon Territory. Both were handwritten. So shout out to the Oregon Spectator for using a printing press. The fact that there's nothing called right now the Flum Gudgeon Gazette is a travesty of the internet. Maybe we should call the local the Flum Gudgeon Gazette from now on. Two G's in Flum Gudgeon, by the way. We're highlighting the lives and achievements of black Oregonians through Black History Month. Today, we remember Pat Patterson. Pat was the first black basketball player for the University of Oregon and owner of the Dude Ranch, a World War II-era Portland jazz club in an iconic spot. During his time on the UVO basketball team, the team won 16 straight games, 20 in all, the most in the school's history at that time. And later on, he owned the Dude Ranch on North Williams. It was open only for one year, 1945. The club featured greats like Louis Armstrong, Billy Holiday, Nat King Cole, and Thelonious Monk. Today we'll have an interview with Travis Williams, Executive Director from the Willamette Riverkeeper. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Janelle Bynum wants to limit the use of tear gas. For months, police have been using less lethal munitions against protesters in Portland streets. Along with pepper spray and impact munitions, they frequently deployed tear gas, a weapon banned in warfare under the Geneva Protocol of 1925. The chemical agent not only has been used against protesters, it also contaminated Portland's residential neighborhoods near protest sites, getting a bunch of people sick. Oregon State Representative Janelle Bynum wants to ban that use against crowds. This week, witnesses spoke before Bynum's Legislative Subcommittee on Equitable Policing. They recounted various experiences of suffering the effects of tear gas. There are also concerns that tear gas has contaminated an elementary school. The Cottonwood School of Civics and Science is located across the street from the ICE office in Portland. The school has frequently been clouded by chemical agents deployed during nearby protests. A school official told the legislative panel that pellets, pepper balls, and munitions are regularly found in the school's play yard. Fun! The Cottonwood School may reopen in-person learning soon. They've been advised to circulate more air into the building to prevent the spread of the virus. And hey, free pellets! Some have voiced concerns that the external area might be contaminated. If Bynum's proposal becomes law, local and state enforcement could no longer use tear gas as a crowd-controlled munition. Federal agents in Oregon would not be bound by the rule. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. There were 730 new cases of COVID-19 reported in Oregon yesterday, up slightly from the day before. There were seven new deaths. The average daily caseload for the past week was 657. Four of yesterday's new cases were confirmed to be the B117 strain or the UK strain. Oregon health officials are expecting chaos next week when 168,000 more people will become eligible for the vaccine. The newly eligible vaccine recipients will be those aged 80 or older. Oregon expects to receive just over 40,000 first doses of vaccine for next week. 
Compared to the number of eligible recipients, that number is very low. There's still a large number of educators who haven't received the vaccine yet as well. The discrepancy between recipients and supply doesn't look like it will be resolved anytime soon. Starting February 14th, an additional 134,000 people aged 75 to 79 will join the list. The next week, an additional 206,000 people aged 70 to 74 will be added. The number of expected vaccine doses for those weeks will increase slightly, but not nearly enough. According to OHA Director Patrick Allen, based on the expected vaccine supply, it will take three or four months to vaccinate everyone age 65 and older. Some Oregon lawmakers want to allow the creation of public banks. What if we had public banks that were owned and run by municipalities or states? Oregon Senate Bill 339 and House Bill 2743 would allow just that. They would give cities an alternative to putting their funds in large for-profit institutions. The Oregon Public Bank Alliance Chair James Davis is a proponent of the bill. He says cities currently pay big interest rates to big for-profit Wall Street banks. Those costs could be cut in half by working with municipal banks. Davis said, for example, and I'm quoting, it cuts the cost of building a school dramatically, which stretches our tax dollars quite a bit. The Bank of North Dakota is a model for public banking. It has weathered the financial crises of the past hundred years, demonstrated resilience during recessions, and continues to serve its communities. There is some question whether a state bank is legal under the Oregon Constitution. Those questions raised by banking lobbyists. Newt Bueller elaborates on his decision to leave the Republican Party. Bueller was one of more than 6,000 Oregonians to leave the Republican Party in January. Party registration rates show a decline of 0.8% since December 2020. Bueller was a well-known Oregon Republican. He ran for governor against Kate Brown as a Republican in 2018. Since then, his politics have only gotten more conservative. Bueller spoke with KGW and cited a couple of reasons for his decision. Representative Cliff Bentz voted against certifying the presidential election results coming out of Pennsylvania, and the Oregon Republican Party described the Capitol insurrection as a false flag operation. Bueller said, quote, I don't know what the Republican Party stands for. It's almost become a cult of personality. Is it possible to recorrect? Absolutely. There's a lot of potential both nationally and in Oregon if they do it right. He has also stated, quote, conspiracy theorists have been tolerated in the Oregon Republican Party and have not been dealt with effectively. This could be referencing how Oregon Republicans chose QAnon believer Joe Ray Perkins as their candidate to run against Jeff Merkley for the Senate. Portland's police chief has asked the city to cut the bureau budget by just 1% next year to allow the bureau to fill over 100 vacancies. Facing big budget cuts, the mayor's asked each city bureau to consider 5% reductions, but the Portland police have asked to just cut by 1%, about $3.4 million. The bureau currently has 92 officer vacancies and 44 civilian employee vacancies, total of 136. They're authorized to have 916 sworn officers. City commissioners and the mayor have said the development of a new model for public safety is one of their top priorities for the next budget cycle, but not too many details have been yet offered. The mayor did state that he wouldn't revive the gun violence reduction team. The city recorded 55 homicides last year, the most in 26 years. There have been approximately 105 shootings and six gun-related killings so far this year, according to police. To be clear, as I slip into a little bit of context, everything is up during COVID time, except for good stuff, which is mostly down. Depression is up. Domestic violence is up. Stress is up. Calls to just about every kind of hotline are up. 
Joanne Hardesty made clear her views. Here's a quote. I have no intentions of putting more money in the Portland Police Bureau until we have a shared vision of what transformation looks like. A record number of police officers retired or just left this year. From July 1st to February 3rd, 110 officers have left, including 73 who retired and 37 who resigned. Some of this discussion is in the context of what's been a hiring freeze and also higher than average response times. Those response times went to 16 and a half minutes last August, dropped to an average of 10.4 minutes in December. That still, though, remains higher than the 8.2-minute average in January 2020, a year ago, for high-priority calls. And finally, some good news. Portland is not the fiery hellscape some national sources made it out to be this week. A Forbes article entitled Death of a City, the Portland Story, the question mark, published late last week, drew confusion from locals. The article states that violence and vandalism have combined with high housing costs, homelessness, and poor community leadership, leading to the city's imminent decline. It even compares Portland to Pompeii at one point, the ancient city known for its catastrophic volcanic destruction. It's not too far a stretch from the sensationalized image painted by national media of the city's summer protests. Portlanders living their ordinary, unriot-stricken lives took to the internet to ridicule the dramatic narrative, saying it's bizarre and out of touch. However, some downtown businesses say they have been affected by the protests. Property and business owners have expressed frustration with vandalism. Fears have been voiced that the continued civil unrest will prevent commerce. And there is evidence that Portland's national desirability has plummeted. Portland used to be one of the nation's most desirable real estate markets. A recent report by the Urban Land Institute says it's now near the bottom of an 80-city ranking. Nonetheless, most areas of the city continue to experience relatively unchanged levels of vandalism and apocalyptic hellfire. We are all dealing with the extraordinary circumstances of a pandemic. But we're not sure it means that Portland is over just yet. If you live in Portland, what do you think? How has Portland changed due to the protests and pandemic? We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail at 503-233-2700. Again, that's 503-233-2700. And, that and that's today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six Local, Local Rundown. Rundown. X-ray. Now we will hear from Travis Williams from Willamette Riverkeeper, one group threatening to sue Zenith Energy, a controversial oil company based here in Portland along the Willamette River. He spoke with Christine Alexander about the lawsuit. Two environmental groups are threatening to sue Zenith Energy, a controversial oil company based here in Portland along the Willamette River. Willamette Riverkeeper is one of those environmental groups. Here to tell us more about Zenith's actions and the potential lawsuit is Travis Williams, executive director of Willamette Riverkeeper. Good morning, Travis. Hey, good morning, Christine. How you doing? Doing great. Good. Well, so um, I thought I'd start out by just, if you could just give us a quick um, uh, rundown of who are the Willamette Riverkeeper and what do you do? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. So uh, Willamette Riverkeeper is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1996, and uh, we are part of the larger waterkeeper family, if you will, around the United States, Canada, and internationally. There's about uh, 250 uh, waterkeeper, baykeeper, and coastkeeper organizations uh, worldwide. Uh, we're all independent, uh, but we all have the central focus, uh, starting in the, in the United States anyway, with the Clean Water Act. And so uh, Columbia Riverkeeper, Tualatin Riverkeepers, 
uh, Rogue River Keeper, and then we go straight down down into California, different uh, basins and coastlines where you have similar nonprofits that come from that uh, place of enforcing the Clean Water Act. And then, of course, beyond that, it's about protecting water quality and habitat throughout our areas, and each organization kind of has its own uh, approach to doing that and employs different projects and, and laws in some cases to uh, reduce environmental harm and, and to try to keep our our ecosystems healthy. So uh, in our case, um, and in Columbia Riverkeeper's case, we really came together on this particular issue to uh, really draw a line to say, you know, Zenith is uh, violating the Clean Water Act and uh, we need to put a stop to it. So this isn't the first time that Zenith Energy has attracted criticism from environmental groups and activists. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the Zenith Energy and its history? Well, they are, um, they've, they've been in Portland Harbor, the stretch of the Willamette that runs roughly from downtown Portland down to the Columbia uh, for several years. Uh, it's an old asphalt uh, terminal that has been turned to uh, really facilitating the movement of crude oil. And I think when you look at the, the sentiments of folks in Portland who have made it very clear over the years that we do not want any sort of expansion of those types of fossil fuel facilities. Um, what Zenith has done is kind of continuously fly in the face of that. And, you know, we have literally collectively through a whole group of organizations who've been working very hard on this particular issue have shown with hundreds and hundreds of people that um, expansion of that facility and taking in material that is not necessarily what they say it is, um, is really problematic. And so what they've done there is uh, bringing uh, oil in by train and then loading it onto ships for uh, further distribution uh, throughout the Pacific Rim. And I think the city of Portland has made it pretty clear that that type of expansion is not desired by the people who live here. And I think regionally that sentiment is certainly very true in trying to curb that type of exporting of material from North America to other countries. In Zenith's case, they have, um, you know, certainly attracted a, a lot of folks protesting over the past few years at that particular site. Uh, again, trying to make it clear that their continual efforts uh, to expand that site, uh, sometimes they're doing it somewhat deftly, <laughs> um, is really not appropriate. In this case, uh, our two organizations were able to detect uh, movement on the ground that represents, uh, in our view, uh, significant moving of material and earth and kind of prepping for some type of additional construction at the site. Ah, and so under the, go ahead. Yeah, and so under the Clean Water Act, you need to have a permit in order to do that. Uh, whether you're, um, no matter where you're constructing something, typically you need a Clean Water Act permit that says you'll be able to curb the runoff, and which is also called stormwater, uh, in some cases from going into a local river or other area offsite. And that is the very permit, a 1200C permit under the Clean Water Act that uh, Zenith does not possess. Uh, and so... Because of that, that's why we filed the uh, 60-day notice of an intent to sue under the Clean Water Act. 
Travis Williams, Willamette Riverkeeper. That that was what my question was going to be, but you just explained it. That's what this lawsuit is all about. You think they're doing work, they don't have a permit for it. And what do you think the impact of this work would be on uh, the river and, um, well, Zenith and other oil companies? What kind of impacts do they have on the river? Yeah, I think I think the big thing is just that, you know, you need to comply with the basic elements of the law. And, you know, if you're doing any sort of construction project like that, you need to have a permit under the Clean Water Act, whether it's what's called a general permit or a site-specific permit. But to do any large-scale movement of earthen material, you, you need to have that. I think as it relates directly to the Willamette, you have some potential for that material to run off into the river and as we know, the Willamette has a very storied history in relation to both the, the Clean Water Act, certainly, but also uh, as a Superfund site. And so much work in the past 25, 30 years has gone into uh, getting to a point where we can clean up contaminated sediments in that stretch of the river. Um, just adding another <laughs> potential bit of pollution to that doesn't make any sense. And, it, you know, it wouldn't make sense anyway, but... Um, I think when you look at the, hopefully in the next two to three years, the amount of work that's going to begin to physically remove those contaminated sediments from the river, um, that's going to be really huge. And if you also think about the potential of that material to be accidentally discharged Mm. into the river in the transport process of loading and unloading that type of uh, crude oil, you know, there's a possibility for that. That's not to say it would happen, but uh, there's definitely a possibility. So, you know, I think in the case of the Willamette, you have a really good argument for decreasing the imprint of terminals like Zenith and certainly not letting them expand, but also as we move forward, creating better conditions on the river bottom so that we don't have toxics which reside there today. I know that's a whole other issue that <laughs> we can talk a long time about, but um just to remind folks the the final decision for the cleanup was made in january of 2017 the the last days of the obama administration after almost 20 years of having the site listed as a superfund site and it's big it's 10 miles it runs from the fremont bridge almost all the way down to the columbia and you have lots of little pockets if you will and areas of the river bottom that have various contaminants in them and the chief contaminant is PCBs. Mm. Um, And so that and other material will either be removed or they will utilize what they call caps to clean, uh, sorry, not to clean, to uh, place over the contaminated sediment, which would separate that from uh, the environment and certainly people as well. It's not a perfect uh, answer by any stretch, but uh, that decision has been made. So now we're on to trying to get these individual entities to develop their cleanup plans along with the EPA and to eventually remove and or cap a lot of that material on the river bottom. Remove and so cap uh, it. That's, I mean, a dredging obviously would be, how do you cap that? I mean, do they pour concrete on it? What happens? No, it's it's typically, it depends on what the substrate is like. So if you have a really silty river bottom, they'll uh, come in with a variety of clay and dirt and rock, typically in layers. It also depends on how active that portion of the river is. So you might have one side of the river with more current, exerting more force on the river bottom and on the river's edge. You might have another area that shoals a little bit more. Um, For any of those folks who paddle, that's your inside bend of the river where you have uh, deposition occurring, where the sediments like to fall out 
on their own. And so the, the answer and the design of that varies from area to area. And that's kind of the phase that a lot of these companies are in right now, figuring out what is the actual design of that cleanup of the river bottom and or um, uh, remedy, which separates uh, people and uh, the river's ecology from that contamination. And it's, and again, it's not a perfect answer, um, but I think on the whole, we're going to have a river that's in much better condition here, you know, in the next decade in terms of that Superfund interface. Now, one thing I do want to make clear is that even though it's a Superfund site, if you're looking at water quality, generally speaking, uh, it's safe for recreational use. That's always kind of a confusing point when you have contamination on the river bottom. Uh, You know, there's maybe an assumption that that makes the water above it problematic. Um, Generally speaking, and again, I implore people to understand when I use that word generally, um, that it is safe for recreation, although there are certainly lots of issues to look at when it comes to a you know, a big river that flows through a very populated valley and mm-hmm. uh, pours into another big river uh, at the very end, kind of traveling through a large metro area. So, it's, you know, there's always exceptions and there's things that we can do to make conditions better. My guess- that gets us back to Zenith. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> With, you know, it's like, let's, let's get this right. Let's, you know, you need a Clean Water Act, a permit under the Clean Water Act, or you're violating the law and, and we and Columbia Riverkeeper will sue you. My guest is Travis William, ex- Williams, Executive Director of Willamette Riverkeeper. Real quick then, um, last question, uh, Travis. Can you give us an update? Back in October, the Willamette Riverkeeper filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security about chemical munitions that were used during the summer protests. Can you give us an update on that lawsuit? Yeah, you bet. I, um, there's not a lot I can say other than they made a motion to missed the lawsuit um, and we and our partners in that effort led by the ACLU are responding to that motion to dismiss so now we're kind of working through the if you will the sort of regular uh, chronology of court filings that you have to make before um, this issue is fully heard uh, we do think you know it's not a matter of saying they can't do that but what they didn't do under the National Environmental Policy Act is evaluate the impact of taking those actions. And in our view, when you do something night after night, um, it would seem at times with not a lot of thought that you are having an environmental impact that is significant enough where they should have followed the National Environmental Policy Act, which frankly would have told all of us more about the specific munitions they were using, the chemicals contained within, and the potential harm to the environment. Obviously, these things are made to hurt people and to get people to disperse. That's, that's you know, the mm-hmm. most obvious there. But there's so many questions that surround the specifics of uh, the chemistry of those materials and their impact on people, wildlife, even in downtown Portland, and then certainly flowing into the Willamette River. Wow. Well, thank you for that update. And, um, you know, we don't think about, I, I guess, some... A lot of people do, but maybe one doesn't automatically think of the river when you think about things like tear gas. Um, but it it's it's part of the environment, and that stuff's got to go somewhere. Yeah, and, and I would say one more thing, that in Portland, the stormwater system isn't, it doesn't all flow to the big pipe. 
So some of that material can flow freely directly into the river. Uh, it's only a few hundred yards away in some cases. And if you have a rain event uh, or someone <clears throat> excuse me, spraying off the pavement and sending stuff down the storm drain, some of those storm drains don't have filtration. Uh, that material just makes its way to the river. So that's, that's a key point here. Travis Williams, Executive Director of Willamette River Keeper, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an update on uh, what you guys are up to and how it affects us here in Portland. Hey, you bet. You're welcome, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Travis for joining the local. Big thanks to our production team. Executive Editor of the Magical, Will Romy. Supporting Editors and Writers, Jonathan Covington-Bram, Brian Miller, Julie Oppenheimer. Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringering, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiassi. Big ups. Why do I say big ups? I don't know. Because I feel it's like 2006. To co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving your five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.